And we come to our text tonight, taken from 2 Timothy. You can look in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under your seat. And we're, um, we've finished Daniel uh, about a month ago, and we're um, going through 2 Timothy now, and we're in the middle of the letter. And we'll look at verses uh, 14 to 26. I can't say absolutely everything there is to say about this chunk of the text, but I'll try and say as much as possible. We'll look at verses 14 to 26. That's page 1182 in your church Bible. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, for you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Well, this is God's inspired word. Why don't we ask for his help in understanding it? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, uh, we do thank you for um, the way that you speak to us through the word, and we pray that Uh, you would help us to understand this particular passage in the Bible. Give me clarity of thought and speech. Give all of us a heart that is receptive and ready to hear your word and embrace it as we live the Christian life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now as um, I begin our time together this evening, I want you to do something. If you look under your seat in front of you, underneath the seat, there should be a piece of paper. Now, if, you, um, if you're unable to find the piece of paper, it's because there is no piece of paper. <laughs> I've just scammed you. I've told you something that is just simply untrue. The worst place to get scammed is the church. And you, of all people, should know that when you come to church, you come here, why? Because you come to be fed with the truth. You want to uh, learn from the scriptures. 
and you want to be given the truth, not a version of the truth, not a variation of the truth, not a twisted truth, not a half-truth. You want the truth. You want to be given the Bible. It's the first century, and we see here in our text that the Ephesian church is um, being scammed by two men named Hymenaeus and Philetus. And each week, members of this church were, were coming together, and they were sitting under the teaching of these two false teachers. They were expecting to hear the truth. Sometimes they got the truth. Sometimes they didn't get the truth. Sometimes they got a twisted truth. Now, why is this an issue? Why, is, why do we care so much as, about false teaching? You, you'll find in lots of Presbyterian churches that this is something that we care about. Well, imagine this. Imagine you send your kids to school, and when they go to school, their teacher, they come home having learned that 2 plus 2 is 5 or 7, that the earth is flat, and that the king of England is Barack Obama. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be happy. You'd be furious if your kids came home saying that 2 plus 2 is 10. I'd be furious. Now, just imagine for a moment how the apostle Paul felt. When he found out that his close friends, his, his children in the faith, Christians whom he loved dearly, were being scammed by incompetent teachers, imagine how he felt. That's the context of this chapter. The Ephesian church has been scammed. And, um, and Paul is unable to do anything about it. Why? because Paul is locked up in prison. He's physically unable to go and deal with the situation. So he formulates a letter, and he addresses it to a student, a son in the faith, a friend, a guy who he knows will be able to go handle this issue. His name is Timothy. This letter bears his name. And in this letter, he gives Timothy some detailed instructions as to how he might go and deal with these scam artists, with these false teachers. Now, let's just take a look at this chapter here together, if you will, verses 14 to 26. And one of the things that you will notice in this chapter are all the verbs. What's a verb? A verb is an action word. Uh, it's like um, jump, skip, hop, scream, action word. And you'll notice there's a bunch of action words here in this chapter. Remind, warn, avoid, present yourself, flee, instruct, correct. And so what I've done as I'm presenting this passage to you is I've categorized these verbs into kind of three basic categories. You have Paul's warnings. Avoid, warn. You have his reminders. And then you also have his instructions or his calling, what he calls Timothy and the church to do, how they are to respond to this situation. So why don't we start by looking at a, a couple warnings that we see here. What's the first warning? It's in verse 14. The first warning, it deals with quarreling. Quarreling gets you nowhere. That's warning number one. Look at, let's just read that together. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against what? Quarreling about words. Quarreling about words, Paul says, is of no value. 
Quarreling only ruins those who listen. Let me give you a scenario. Imagine this scenario. Your best friend is an atheist. He's not your, your friendly neighborhood atheist. He's a militant atheist. And he doesn't like God at all. And he's not very happy that you like God or that you're a Christian. He thinks that you're wasting your time with this Christianity, Christianity business. He tolerates you. But he would rather you see the world as he sees it. So on Friday nights, you get together and you start talking about what you believe and he starts talking about what he believes. And the evening just descends into chaos. And there's name calling and there's anger and there's misunderstanding and, and names are, are thrown and someone storms off angry. Now what does this actually accomplish? Nothing. Scenario two. This scenario is taken from the text. It's Sunday morning in Ephesus. And the Ephesian Christians, just like we gathered this morning, the Ephesian Christians, they've come together for church. And either from the pulpit or after the service, this guy named Hymenaeus, that's quite a name, isn't it? Hymenaeus. Name your kid Hymenaeus. Hymenaeus starts going on about the resurrection again. And this has been his hobby horse every week. And he's, he's going to people in the church and he's saying, there is no resurrection in the future. The resurrection has already happened. Christ won't raise people from the dead. That's in verse 18. He's teaching that the, the resurrection has already taken place. He's probably saying that the resurrection has spiritually taken place already. So he's spiritualizing the resurrection. And he was probably influenced by Greek philosophy, which taught that anything physical is evil, but anything spiritual is good. So this is what's happening. Here's the problem. He, he took what he liked about Christianity and he took what he liked about Greek philosophy and he mixed it together. And he got his own, you know, new Hymenaeus religion. And then he was teaching it to the church and the church was embracing it. And, and those who were believers were kind of dividing themselves away from Hymenaeus and those who, who were confused were saying, oh, we're with Hymenaeus. Now that, that's the situation in Ephesus, and it was descending into madness, and people were quarreling and fighting. Now, they weren't debating. This wasn't a reasoned debate. This is, this is a full-out brawl. He's condemning, and Paul is condemning the kind of quarreling that, that you might see, let's say, in a pub, or the kind of quarreling that you might see in the backseat of your car as you're on a long trip to Queensland. That kind of quarreling. This is the kind of quarreling that's happening in the church. It's like a, a name-calling, uh, fueled by misinformation. It was an emotionally charged quarrel. And in verse 16, he specifies the nature of this quarrel. Look at verse 16 with me. The nature of this quarrel. Godless chatter. Or the ESV says, I, I believe, irreverent babble. Godless meaning God-less. God is missing from the equation. So as they quarrel, no one's appealing to the apostles' teaching. No one's appealing to uh, the scriptures. No one is bringing the conversation back to Christ. What are they likely appealing to? Emotions. Philosophy. Imagine this third scene with me. You have a quarrel much like 
what was happening in Ephesus. And on your left, you have John, and on your right, you have Betty. And they're, they're two members of the church, and they're quarreling. And they're quarreling about the most hotly contested uh, thing in the church, the drums. Quarreling about the drums. John hates the drums. Um, and the moment is heated. And in a fit of annoyance, John says to Betty, well, you're not an expert. And all of my favorite experts say that the drums are very, very, very unbiblical. In fact, I have a scientist in Timbuktu, and he's a drum specialist, and he'll set you straight. Go educate yourself. And then Betty responds with her feelings. Betty's emotionally charged. I don't like, I don't like the way you're talking to me. I'm angry. You're being mean to me. The drums inspire me. And you see what's happening there. You, you have two people. They're appealing to different things. One person is appealing to, to the experts. The other person is appealing to her feelings. And when we fight and when we quarrel often, that's how the conversation goes. We appeal to all these things. We appeal to, um, we appeal to our college degree. We appeal to our feelings and our emotions. We appeal to society. Oh, everyone else is doing it. All the other churches are doing it. We should do it. But what Paul says here is those are godless quarrels. We need to have God-centered reasoning in the church. As we reason together, as we have conversations that are driven by our love for Christ and our love for the Scriptures. And that's very different than quarreling. Paul says that quarreling is an issue. We are called to reason with people. We don't name call. We don't stand on the street corner and scream. We don't hit people over the head. We don't misrepresent their position. We aren't driven by a desire to win an argument. We are driven by our love for Christ and our love for other people. So that's the first warning. Let's look at another warning. Deception is more dangerous than you think of it. And look at verse 26. We are reminded in verse 26 that the father of deception inspires all deception. We, we remember that from Genesis chapter 3. That the world descended into, um, into sin and darkness because of deception. Deception is dangerous. Now, um, there's this doctor. He lives in Texas. And he was nicknamed Dr. Death for obvious reasons. And he wasn't really qualified to... Um, to do surgery, but somehow he obtained a medical license and he uh, used that um, to botch surgery after surgery after surgery after surgery. And the moral of the story there, of course, is that deception is dangerous. Deception does hurt people. When we lie to people, it does have a rippling effect. There are negative consequences Look at verse 17. Deception, Paul says, false teaching is like what? It's like gangrene. Do you know what gangrene is? It's this, this little, it's an infection. And it starts maybe perhaps in the tips of your finger or the tips of your toes. And, and your, your fingers start swelling and then they start to blacken. And then the blackness starts spreading through your body until it gets to the end of your fingers, to your hand, and then eventually you need to call a doctor 
to go get your hand amputated. It's, it's horrible. And that's the word that Paul uses to describe false teaching. What does he call it? He says it is gangrene. That's in the Bible. It's gangrene. It's destructive. And it can harm people. Now, let me just give you two practical examples, two more practical examples of how false teaching in the church can harm people. Example number one. You know, every morning, 11 o'clock rolls around, and Betty gets out of bed, she flicks on the TV, and there's her favorite you know, televangelist, and he's there on the TV. And she's so excited to hear him uh, preach. And he promises her day after day, week after week, that he is going to heal her cancer if she donates all of her money to his charity. Now, you tell me where that's found in the scriptures. It's found nowhere. But because she is a lovely lady and she does truly love the Lord, she truly does want to be healed of this cancer, she gives her money to this man who is conning her. That's, that's how false teaching can damage people. It is harmful. Um, another example is going back to youth group. Jimmy likes a girl. And Jimmy says to this girl that God has told him that they need to date. God has told them that they need to start dating. He feels like God is telling them that they're going to get married and have kids together. And who is this girl to say no to God? So what does she do? She says, well, if God said so, and bada boom, bada bing. They have this uh, unhappy marriage. Uh, she, she, her world was, was rocked uh, by, a, by a lie, by false teaching. And so what, we, what I'm trying to show you here is that misunderstanding the Bible does actually have real consequences. Sometimes we don't necessarily see the consequences. Sometimes we, it seems like everything's happy and clappy and okay. But I assure you that any time a lie is told, there will be a rippling effect. And not only that, you know, false teaching is damaging to people. It's also damaging to God. Let me explain. It is an awful, 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 awful thing to misrepresent God, to twist His words. Is it not? To add to God's words, to ignore God's words, to edit God's words. Imagine this. Imagine, you know, I have this handwritten note and I ask my wife to go deliver that note to Gerald. And instead, what she does is she takes it, she rips out pieces of that note, she starts editing the note, she starts adding her own two bits to the note, and then she gives it to Gerald, and it's not even my note. It's completely twisted and misrepresented. It's something different than I intended. Yeah, I don't know about you, but that, that would really bother me. When people misrepresent you, when they take you out of context, when they twist your words, when they ignore your words, it's not a good thing. Now, false teaching always does this to God. It always does this to God. God hates it when people misrepresent Him. When they take His words out of context, when they add to His words, when they twist His words, when they ignore His words. That's what false teaching does. It adds to the Bible. It ignores the Bible. False teaching even waters down the Bible. And that's, that's 
one form of false teaching that we're not really aware of. We see, we, we might go to a particular church, we might think, yeah, that sounds good, that sounds good, that sounds good, but it still feels like something's missing. I haven't been told the whole truth because the sermon has watered down the Bible. That's what false teaching does. Now, we expect truth, don't we, from our doctors? If I go to a surgeon and the surgeon says that he's going to do something, I expect truth from him. We expect uh, the truth uh, from our accountants, and we uh, should expect the truth from every pastor who preaches the Bible. And those are Paul's warnings here. Now, let's look at uh, some reminders. We've looked at some warnings. Let's look at some reminders Reminder number one, the truth is unchanging. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 says this. Read it with me. God's solid foundation stands firm, for the Lord knows those who are his. And I want to just focus on those words here for now. God's solid foundation stands firm. It's speaking of truth there. And we live in a society that... where truth can just be whatever you want it to be. If you believe in God, well, that's true for you. If you um, believe in Hinduism, well, that's true for you. If you believe in atheism, then that's true for you. And two plus two is five. But the Bible never defines truth this way. Let me, um, let me quote an article for you that defines truth, okay? And it comes from a Christian article. It says this, The Greek word for truth is aletheia, which literally means to uncover or to unhide. Uh, It conveys thought that truth is always there. It's always out in the open and available for all to see. The Hebrew word for truth is the word emeth, which means firmness or constancy or duration. And such a definition implies that An everlasting substance is something that can be relied upon. Another pastor said this, You and I can discover truth, but we cannot create it. What's true is true and what's not is not. For all of us, all of the time, and our culture views truth as something inside of us, subject to revision, according to our growth and enlightenment. But the scripture views truth as what? Something that is outside of us. Not something that is in us, something that is outside of us, which we can believe, but we can never sway. So in other words, truth is objective. It is fixed. We can say that two plus two is four. I expect my teacher to teach my child that. We can, the, the king of England is King Charles. The ocean is filled with water. This doesn't change. And... You know, when, when I go to the doctor and let's say he tells me that I have diabetes, I don't get to tell him, well, that's your opinion. I say to him, okay, doc, that's the truth. And I'll live according to that truth. And that's the way that the Bible presents truth to us. Christianity makes several objective truth claims. They either happened or they did not. There's no middle ground here. It's either true or it's false. God created the world in six days. True or false? We claim that sin has corrupted the world. True or false? We claim that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. True or false? 
We claim that Jesus rose from the dead. True or false? We claim that we can be forgiven and reconciled to God through faith in Christ. True or false? These things are, are things that don't change. Yet you can't go back in time and undo the cross. You can't go back in time and stop God from creating the world. You can't go back in time and stop the Israelites from crossing the Red Sea. What does false teaching do? It tries to change the facts. It tries to distort the facts. It tries to erase the facts. It tries to ignore the facts. But what does verse 19 say? And let me give you a little literal translation of verse 19. Verse 19, as I've translated it, says this. God's cornerstone does not budge. And Paul uses, you'll see he uses several metaphors here in this chapter. I mean, he talks about gangrene. There's one metaphor. He talks about a house with um, gold and silver. I'll talk about that metaphor in a second here. But here he uses another metaphor. He says, God's cornerstone does not budge. The truth is like a stone. You know, you go down to, um, you go down to the CBD and you, go, you see Scott's church, this old historic church in the center of the city on Collins Street. And, and at the base of that church, there are stones, unmovable stones. It doesn't really matter if it rains or if it, if it snows or if there's an earthquake or if there's a tornado. That, that stone is not moving. That's the image that Paul has here. He says that God's truth does not move. It is fixed. It does not change. Now, there's another aspect to this metaphor. We are told here that the names of God's people are written on this stone. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, imagine um, we did something cheeky and we went down to that stone building and we etched our names in that stone. They... That, that, that wouldn't change either, would it? An earthquake couldn't change the fact that our names are written in that stone. And what Paul is trying to show us here with this metaphor is not only that the truth is unchanging, but that those who belong to the truth, those who have embraced the truth and love the truth, that they, that they are secure, that, that God has those people in the palms of, their, of his hands. See, the problem in Ephesus is that, is that these false teachers were trying to draw people away from the truth. But here Paul is reminding them that you have believed in Jesus Christ. You know in whom you have believed and are persuaded that he will keep you. And so he's saying here, if you belong to the truth, then God will keep you in the truth. Reminder number two. The truth also corrects us. And I draw this point from verse 15. It says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The truth corrects us. You know, it's easy for us um, as Christians often to point the finger at people and say, He's got it wrong. He's got it wrong. He's got it wrong. He's got it wrong. They've got it wrong. This church has got it wrong. That church has got it wrong. And, you know, at times that is valid because we do need to point out error. But we should never say to ourselves that we are perfectly infallible, that we can never err, that we can never misunderstand. 
We, can, we should never give ourselves a pat on the back and grin with a smile on our face and say, well, they've got it all wrong and I'm the only one who's got it all right. Because we don't have a perfect and infallible understanding of the Bible. We, sometimes we come to the Bible with sinful eyes. Sometimes we misunderstand the truth. We need to remember that. And, and we see that throughout church history. Let me give you an example. It's the first century. And all of the pastors of the early church have come together. And they are meeting in the, at, at, at the, as a council in Jerusalem. And there is Peter. Who is Peter? Peter was an apostle of Christ. Jesus said that he would build his church on Peter. On Peter's confession. And there, Peter has lost the plot. He's, he's made an error in his theology. And he was teaching something strange about, about food laws and keeping the Old Testament law. And in the Council of Jerusalem, we see that Paul, the apostle, corrects Peter and rebukes Peter and, and says to him, you've got it wrong. Now, even we Presbyterians, sometimes, believe it or not, we, we do err. We do make mistakes. We, I, I've said things from the pulpit that have probably been wrong. And just to clarify, we do our best to be as faithful to the text as possible. But even our own confession of faith, Westminster Confession 31 says, all synods or councils since the times of the apostle might err, meaning that we are not infallible, that we do at times say things and do things that are not completely aligned with Scripture. And our ultimate authority is the, are the Scriptures, the source of all truth, is, is the Bible. The Bible, the Scriptures, they correct us. They inform us. And if we are in error, then we point that out to people and we are... And we receive correction when we are in error. Read verse 15 with me again. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So the calling here is that Timothy would take the Bible and he would use it to correct people. He would use it to correct people that have gone way off the rails and he would use it to correct people who have just gone off the rails and for those who are slightly confused or misinformed. And that's how the scriptures are to be used, to correct us. And that's why, that's why we're here. What, what are we being, what's happening right now? All of us as we sit under preaching, myself included, we're being corrected. We're being, uh, we're being brought closer and closer to a knowledge of the the truth as it's presented in the Bible. And so that's what this good preaching is meant to do. It's meant to correct. And that's a good thing. Can you imagine if you were learning the piano and your teacher never corrected you? Every week was just a pat on the back and good job champ. Or if your, if your um, coach never corrected you. Uh, your form is perfect always. You always kick the ball you know, just right. You imagine if, if preaching every week were just a pep talk. Good job, champ. And I send you on your way. That's not preaching. 
God uses preaching to change us, to, to renew our minds, to transform us, to make us more like Jesus Christ, to correct us when we err. And so, so that is one function of the Scriptures, and that's what Paul calls Timothy to do. He calls them to take these, to go to these false teachers who have gone way off track and to bring them into conformity with God's Word. So the truth corrects us. Now we've looked at warnings and we've looked at reminders. Now let's look at our calling. First, we are called to stick out. Our culture has its own set of values, its own beliefs, its own morals. Sometimes Christian values overlap with cultural values and sometimes they don't. For example, both Christians and non-Christians would say that murder is wrong. But the Christian alone is the one who says that life begins at conception, that we are created in our mother's womb. So we disagree with the values of our culture at times. As, um, you know, we, we might disagree with things like creation and marriage and, and alcohol, and, and our beliefs will sometimes misalign with those values of the world, and we stick out because of it. Our culture doesn't always accept the truth that we preach. But God has called us to be salt and light in this world. He has called us to be holy and set apart. And um, in verses 20 and 21, we are told in verse 21 that we have been set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. In this analogy here, verses 20 and 21, Paul paints for us this picture. And in this picture, he tells us about these dishes. You know, some of these dishes in verse 20 are vessels of gold. Some are vessels of silver. Some are vessels of wood. Some are vessels of clay. Some are for, to be used honorably and some dishonorably. And so he uses this image. He paints us this picture of you know, the kitchen table. And there are all these dishes. You know, you have this wood plate and this gold spoon. And the gold spoon sticks out amongst the the wooden plate and the wooden cup and the wooden cutlery. And it's different. And what Paul is saying here is that the golden spoon sticks out because it is different and God has set it apart for a special purpose. And what we are told here is that as Christians, as we live out our Christian faith in this world, that we, like this golden fork, will stick out because we have been set apart as those who believe and embrace the truth. Second, we are called to model the truth that we preach. You know, we often think that truth is just something that we assent to, right? You know, we, we go take a class and, oh yeah, I I can get on board with everything that this person is saying. But truth is not something that we merely assent to. Think about gravity. I assent to the truth of gravity, but I don't merely assent to that truth. I live according to that truth. I believe, not only do I believe in the truth of gravity, but I live by it. And And I live by it so I don't go skydiving and I don't stand near edges of cliffs and and I don't climb up ladders. Why? Not because because I don't merely assent to the truth of gravity, 
but because I live my life according to that truth. And Paul reminds Timothy here that when we preach, preach the truth and when we embrace the truth, that we don't merely just assent to the truth, but that we live according to that truth and we model our lives according to that truth. Now, what is the truth that we were reminded of in this chapter? That we belong to Christ, that the Lord knows those who are His, right? And so he's saying to Timothy, you are to live according to the truth that you believe. And so look at verse 22. What does it mean to live according to the truth we believe? Flee. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And you can summarize that verse into two words, faith and repentance. A daily turning away from everything that is false. A daily turning away from all the junk that we see in the world. All the things that confuse us and disrupt our lives and a daily turning towards Jesus Christ in faith. A daily turning towards Him and saying, yes, you are my Savior. Yes, I have sinned against you and I need your forgiveness. Yes, I am going to live my life with a heart filled with thankfulness for all that you have done for me. And so you've seen it here. You've seen a chapter that is filled with warnings and reminders and callings. And, and all of these warnings and reminders and callings are centered around the central idea, the title of my sermon, The Truth Matters. And I want to leave you with a question uh, to think about as we leave this place tonight. How do you communicate the truth to people? Most of us tonight believe the truth, all of us here, I dare say. But how do we, how should we communicate those beliefs, beliefs to the world? Well, what we say and what we say matters. You know, that's really important. So as we, we communicate the truth to people, we don't water it down. We don't twist it. We don't add to it. We don't subtract from it. But Paul also reminds us that the way we say it matters as well. It's not just what we say, it's how we say it. I was recently watching this video, and in the video, uh, it compared words in different languages. And so you had words, words in French and Spanish and Italian and English and German. And in the video, it had um, the word for butterfly in each language. And in and in all these different languages, the word for butterfly sounded very nice. You know, in Spanish it was mariposa, and in French it was papillon, and Italian it was farfalla. All these beautiful sounding words. But then you got to German. German. German sounds frightening. And in German, the word for butterfly is schmetterling. 
And you see how the same word can be said in different ways. And it means the same thing. But the way we communicate things matters. And as we take this wonderful truth and we bring it to people and as we share it with um, those you know, across the aisle at work or we share it with those uh, friends and family members that we have, we need to have a bit of common sense as we share the truth with these precious people. We need to think about this. Look at what Paul says. He says, in verse 24, the Lord's servant. Who, are, who am I? Who are you? you? We are the Lord's servants. We must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting our opponents with gentleness, so that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. How are we to, to communicate this truth? people. Well, there are instances, of course, where we need to be firm with people and bold with people and straight with people. There are instances when we need to exercise a bit of tough love. I'm not denying that. But there are also instances where we need to be patient with people and where we need to hear them out before responding and that we need to respond in love and, and, and give them the truth, but give them the truth in a way that desires their salvation and doesn't desire necessarily just to win an argument. And that's Paul, Paul's point here. He's saying, you know, the truth is not wielded as a machine gun, but the truth is wielded like a scalpel. And we use it to cut, but not just to cut. We use it so that it would heal and that people might come to embrace uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So may God help us be those who love the truth, who live according to the truth, and who share the truth with others. Let's pray. A gracious God and Father in heaven, Lord, this chapter challenges us, and it also comforts us. And it comforts us in the knowledge that we truly belong to you. We are your children. And that um, no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever rip us from your hand. And it also challenges us to be thoughtful about the way that we interact with others. Lord, we, we don't have any time for false teaching here. And we don't have any time for others who engage in false teaching. But we also know that um, we, we need to be patient with people and that we need to speak the truth and love to people. So Lord, would you give us discernment and help us to communicate this, this gospel to people so that they might come to a knowledge of the truth and embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.